1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The phone
1: is on. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. those, That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well,
2: oh, you can laugh.
1: I'm the I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want
2: to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did
0: you want? I like to stay alive for six days. i a needle there.
2: I'd say it to you, but it's not say it to now. I'm down Swansfield, and we'll see them,
0: will with
1: What you doing down here, you Shawnee man? It took all of our combined willpower and strength of purpose, but we have just about managed to drag ourselves off Witty Island and back to studio in Dublin. You're very welcome to Second Captain's Football Podcast today. Ken is still off this week, so it's just myself and Murph. How are you, Ken? Hello there, one. Oh, what a time. What an amazing time. Watching the Lions match in Tighe Furlong's Uncle's Pub, followed by a recording of the podcast, which is available now to everybody. What you will hear whenever you get the chance to listen is a scene-stealing performance by Tighe's uncle, Tim O'Leary. Mm-hmm amazing memories from Barry Murphy of scoring the try against Munster against Munster four Munster against the All Blacks amazing yes in 2000 and his own th- uh,
3: deep seated family history uh, of relationships between New Zealand and his dad
1: oh yeah uh, yeah crazy brilliant richie being richie and a cracking contribution from Mark Foley uh, another cork legend a cork hurling legend who won all ireland's in basically Every competition that's ever existed. What you won't hear. Sorry, you want to come in? Here? No, no. Just just saying that you're you're
3: painting an incomplete picture of just how hard it was for us to leave that island. Because after the show finished, uh, the sun. Well, the sun was out while we were uh, while we were recording. We stepped out of our marquee out into the bright summer sunshine. Uh, the view across Bantry Bay to Bantry and to our uh, and to uh, beautiful. West, I was going to call it west, Cor- uh, uh, west Cork. Of course it is West Cork. I got into a major argument with multiple people on Woody Island about what exactly constitutes West Cork. <laughs> I told them that I stayed on the Bear Peninsula, uh, which, if you look on the map, is about 30 miles further west than West Cork-Bantry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, th- no, that's North Cork. <laughs> Listen, on.
1: I digress. Suffice to say, West Cork, beautiful part of the world. Were those people you were arguing with were they the two nine-year-old kids who kept driving around the island? <laughs> no. Don't, uh, those <laughs> no. You, stayed, you stayed away from those two? No,
3: now, to be fair, oh, they looked more like 11 or 12 <laughs> than nine. They both had hoodies on uh, to protect their identities, or maybe just because they were a little cold. I don't know. <laughs> what, you
1: won't hear, what you won't hear is an interview with Damien O'Neill, local Bantry man who captained the Cork Footballers in Under-21 All-Ireland title, and a senior All-Ireland final a number of years later. We've had some no-shows Before on Mm. things that we've done You know the odd time Some emergency comes up And the guest doesn't have time To contact you Or somebody just forgets Clean forgets they've committed to a show In this case Saturday was the first time I can say that a guest At the moment they're supposed to be on air Has just left the island left the tent that they were in, Mm. uh, left the island, hopped on a boat and legged it back across to Bantry Bay so that they can travel to Killarney to be with their mates on a stack. That's definitely a first. It is, son, it is. Is Damien here? (laughs) Damien's not here. Has he gone to the toilet? No, he stepped outside. I think some fresh air. Is he nervous? I was told by everybody down there he's definitely not nervous because Damien can talk. No, we've met met Damien before that. Nerves
3: weren't going to be an issue. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But but there
1: was, was, as they say,
3: a scheduling problem. (laughs) The scheduling question was, a trip to Killarney for
1: a stag. But nevertheless, uh, we trucked on without Damien and uh, we we thank him for agreeing in the first place. Yeah, no, thanks remains, you know. He did Mm. come to the island and lend his name.
3: Yeah, again, we should, yeah, it's not that he he just couldn't make it across I mean having met it to the island you would have thought that was the hard part (laughs) out of the way yeah I've
1: committed now I'm definitely going to do it Uh, no this is taking too long anyway thank you Damien once again Mm. that podcast is available to everybody but if you want to have a listen to Damien Duff's appearance in the player's chair with Richie Sadler from last week and need to get yourself signed up for the second captain's world service we've had a huge reaction to it Donald O'Neill is the latest email that's come into us that I want to read out to editor at secondcaptains.com. Donald says Dear Second Captains, I really enjoyed the players share with Damien Duff last week I didn't need him to tell us that he still puts in 100% effort in every game including friendly kickabouts because I have first hand experience of that I live in Bray about 100 yards from Duffer's in-laws about 14 years ago that's 14 years ago bear in mind Damien Duff now okay. 28 yeah. and now 38 I should say so 24 years of age at this point uh, was so about 14 years ago with three young kids then aged 8, 9 and 10 were playing on the green when who should appear only the bell Damien who was visiting his buddy Ciaran and asked could he play the lads recognised him and were delighted he played against the three of them and beat them 18-2. <laughs> they didn't mind, but ran home to share the news that they played against Duff. What a legend. The silver champions. Although, I do think if he offered a rematch, they would reverse the score now. I'm not sure about that, Donald. I was looking into this. 14 years ago, 2003. If we say, take this date, June 26th. Mm-hmm. In June 26th, Murph, 2003, Damien Duff was relaxing at home in Ireland on the off-season preparing for his big money move to Chelsea, where he went on to win two Premier League titles. This is in-form prime Damien Duff, and I'm just disappointed he conceded two goals to these three young lads. Mm, I'd say that <laughs> kept, him with kept him up. that Sounds night. like a might-up. He seems to, t- seems to take all this rather seriously, which I have to say makes me like Damien Duff. Every, everything I hear Damien Duff say or someone say about Damien Duff it makes, makes like me him like, like yeah. him even more. Yeah. It's true. Oh, yeah. Duffer and all previous players here podcasts podcast are available. Secondcaptains.com. You can join up there for a fiver a month plus fat. If you've been availing yourself of the midsummer fix of football provided by the Confederations Cup, you're going to know that Russia don't look like they're going to be pulling up trees at their own World Cup next year. But it's off the pitch where the real problems might lie. We'll get into this in a second with Nick Harris. And later on, Cork City start their European campaign this week on the back of a reasonable run of form. 18 wins, one draw, 19 games so far played in the league. Not bad. Just last year, a couple of people... A couple of people, a lot of people, possibly ourselves even. We're talking about Dundalk as one of the all-time great League of Ireland teams. and thought my head they were going to take the money from the European run and dominate the scene for uh, at least 10 to 15 to 20 years before mm. some other great team came along. It hasn't quite turned out that way. I'm going to talk to Neil Horgan, of course, a legend, about it today.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, the whole idea is that in a league where there's not a whole lot of money sloshing around, one team gets a vast sum of money, that that should probably be enough to ensure that you stay at the top for, well, whatever about 15 or 20 years, uh, five or six years might be more like it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of Cork City people thought the gap wasn't quite as big last year as all of Dunduk's, uh magnificent Europa League uh, performances yeah. might have suggested. Uh, and this week... Cork City have a chance to go on a Europa League run of their own, so uh, now's as good a time as any to talk about them.
1: This day next year, we're going to be glued to the World Cup group deciders going on in Moscow, Sochi, St. Petersburg and the Rostov Arena on this day next year. At least that's the plan, unless there's some dramatic ramifications from Nick Harris's great work in the Mail on Sunday this weekend. He revealed that FIFA are investigating whether Russia's entire squad for the last World Cup in 2014 were part of the country's state-supported doping program I should say. Five of those players have been involved in the Confederations Cup in the last week and questions are again being asked about Russia's suitability to host these major sporting events and this major sporting event in particular. Nick, great to talk to you again. How are you?
2: Good. Good. Glad to be here.
1: Uh, Really, really interesting stuff. Can you explain how the Russian football team has become implicated in this?
2: yeah we set out to do a piece of work to try and quantify the amount of different sports people uh, who were implicated in this scheme, um, sport by sport. There was no definitive list out there uh, about how many people may have benefited from either being given performance enhancing drugs or being in beneficial testing pools where their their urine was either cleaned or having uh, tests uh, that failed tests covered up so that that was the starting point. Um, um, the McLaren investigatory team, who the wider Commission investigatory team, has compiled masses of evidence. Quite a lot of which they put um, into the public domain on a on a fairly dense um, website. Um, but lots of the information was there, and obviously we had our own sources as well. Man, on Sunday we first broke the story of this state-sponsored doping back in twenty thirteen. So once we started to go through the the cases, um, we wanted to know how many of the wordpress sport and what the federations were then going to do with that information, that evidence against the individual sports people. So um, over many hundreds of hours going through the available documents, emails, paperwork, manifest lists, none of which is sort of very easily ordered. It's not as if there's a list of 30 footballers and the 200 swimmers or whatever. There's just hundreds of thousands of documents. I individually sort of went through line by line, and each each sort of individual in there has got a code name, a code number, a sample number, um, a unique sample reference numbers for individual samples that were stored on their behalf, um, and so on. And and each time I sort of put put the sample numbers for the footballers back into the database, effectively what is the database, and and led to the relevant other documents that mentioned that person. It might just be a piece of paper about a test. It might be an email about them, whatever. Um, I start to notice a pattern that all the football, a group of the footballers, were coming back to a document called EDP-72. 72. EDP-72 72 by itself is a fairly unremarkable single sheet of paper, which has got 24 redacted names on it. Uh, doesn't even identify the genders or the sport of the players. But once I'd sort of already know, could identify that the sample numbers of those 24 people, whoever they were, all individually matched, male football players, and then notice that the date this document created was the 3rd of June 2014, it became fairly clear to me that um, that this was the Russian World Cup football team. First of all, I, I, I checked, once, once I had the sort of working hypothesis, I checked with two sources, one in Russian and one with somebody familiar with the investigatory process itself and had it confirmed, a uh, double source, that, that this was in fact the team, and that these 23 who went to the World Cup, the whole World Cup squad, were and are among the 34 cases that have been referred by the McLaren investigatory team via WADA to FIFA. So that was it. I had it confirmed, that the 23 cases. Now, what, what they're being investigated for precisely, though the 23 is not, we, you know, we haven't confirmed that. What we do know is that some footballers in the, you know, under the microscope are, are being investigated for um, having substances ranging from high testosterone levels to um, steroids to growth hormone and other substances. We don't know for sure that that's um, any individual player within the World Cup squad has tested positive or, shown an irregular sample, but what we do know is that there's enough um, supplementary intelligence that the McLaren investigatory team said the whole squad needed to be investigated. I think, my understanding is the working hypothesis is that the the whole squad were quite possibly the beneficiaries of a scheme whereby, you know, they were effectively protected in one way or another. Now, whether that meant that they were just guaranteed, however it may work, that they would never come up positive or whether they were not tested or whatever, there's apparently intelligence and evidence to suggest that certainly it is worthy of investigation by FIFA and by WADA to find out exactly why Mm. these, you know, what this intelligence is, why they benefited, why they were part, how they came to be part of this program involving a thousand people. So that's how I I sort of got to the conclusion um, with, you know, hundreds of hours of very boring, meticulous (laughs) checking of cross-checking of documents I then contacted uh, every federation, more than 30 sporting federations, FINA for swimming and weightlifting and curling and taekwondo and table tennis, with, with all the, you know, once we had our, base, our own dossier of sport by sport, list 203 track and field athletes, 117 weight 117 swimmers and so on. I, like, at the beginning of last week, I contacted every federation individually. Um, on the advice of Wada, I have to stress, Wada said, "Get in touch with the federations. they will confirm the these de- details to you. The numbers, obviously not the names, but the numbers and what they 're doing about it. So I got in touch with FIFA i in my correspondence with FIFA, I was very specific about the fact that I knew there were thirty four cases that had been passed to them, you know that twenty three were the World Cup squad and that there were eleven others. Firmly believed to be under seventeen and under twenty-one Russian internationals and other assorted players, and and asked them just to con- well, I asked them eight questions, but including to confirm that they were that they had the information as I'd been told they'd be given it, and that they were investigating. They sent me a very short reply confirming that they were the they were ongoing investigations into the McLaren report cases. By the nature of the specific way I asked the question, citing for a fact that they knew that the 34 were X and Y and asking them to confirm, they sent me a short email back confirming they were looking at these cases. That, for, to my mind is absolutely clear from the context of the questions I posed to FIFA that they confirmed to me, as as they did to the wider world yesterday, that they are investigating the McLaren cases. I mean, there's obviously the issue of sort of FIFA, you know, putting out, I have to say, a slightly disingenuous statement yesterday, again, reconfirming to the wider world that they're looking at the McLaren cases without specifying the, the 23
1: Yeah I'll just read that bit out there because that's the the most recent World Cup squad This is their reaction Nick Yeah, yeah. They they say FIFA has simply confirmed that in close collaboration with WADA it is still investigating the allegations involving football players in the so-called McLaren report However FIFA did not refer to any particular players since it cannot comment on the status of ongoing investigations So the the obvious reading of that is that they're saying well we're not confirming that it was a World Cup squad we're just saying that there were players mentioned in the McLaren report
2: yeah, and that, that's why it's so important, the context of my communication to FIFA, which asked them specifically about the McLaren players, me identifying that we were aware now who the 34 McLaren players are. They are the World Cup, the 23-man World Cup squad, plus the 11 others. That, that was the question as posed to FIFA. And they simply sent back a short paragraph, much shorter than the statement they released yesterday, confirming that they were ongoing investigations into the McLaren report players. Given that I know who the McLaren Report players are, because we've identified them, and we put it in the correspondence to FIFA, when they confirm to me that they are looking, you know, it's clear, it's clear. I mean, they they obviously are. They obviously are continuing to look at the McLaren players. And what we revealed yesterday is who the McLaren players are. They're the 23-man World Cup squad, plus the 11 others. That's why I think FIFA are being disingenuous at best in sort of trying to say, A, we're not confirming anything but also be trotting out all this thing about every Russian tested was tested in 2014 and they all came back clean as if, mm. as if clean tests are somehow evidence of, of, um, you know, innocence, which as we know in sport over many sports and many years, a, a clean test is not evidence of, uh, of innocence. And in actual fact, in this specific case, you know, one of the whole issues is dirty athletes coming back clean. That of course is not to suggest or prove that the Russian World Cup team were all taking performance enhancing drugs. That is to be determined. However, what is being investigated and needs to be investigated is exactly the circumstances in which, um, you know, the players were being drug tested and what was happening to those samples. Who was you know managing um, that testing? You know, was it all above board? And, and all those kind of questions, and that is up to FIFA to investigate. They've had this information for six months, and we haven't heard any anything about what they're doing about it. And I think there are legitimate questions to ask about what they're doing and when they're going to explain to people what they've been doing. Um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, in order to give the public confidence that they're actually taking this seriously, they need to explain what they're doing and and what they found.
1: Dick Pound, who's a man we've spoken to on the show before, former head of WADA, he investigated the doping in track and field, Russian track and field. You've quoted him widely in the piece. It doesn't seem like he's too confident that FIFA will really do all they can to get to the bottom of this. He says, It's been an institutional denial of doping in football for years. I've seen too many presentations by FIFA straight out of fantasy land about how they don't have a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, Dick Dick is a straight-talking, Very high-profile anti-doping advocate, the longest-serving current member of the IOC, you know, and so outspoken in as much as he's right on the inside and yet is speaking out on these issues, Uh, and and you know he's a veteran. He knows this area inside out. He knows that football's been in denial widely. Football. I'm not talking about Russian football particularly now, but football in general has been in denial about doping forever. So, but of course he hasn't got confidence, I don't think, in FIFA, in the same way that he hasn't got confidence in many of the federations to do the right thing now, you know. Do federations want to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds bringing anti-doping violations that may or may not end up in convictions? Because some of the evidence is absolutely compelling and apparently rock-solid. Other evidence is much less so. So there's, there is sort of expense for not necessarily guaranteed rewards. I think we have to acknowledge that. But also I think he, he hasn't got the confidence that the federations want to sort of have this catharsis that it would that it would entail being if suddenly all these federations have to bring hand between a handful and hundreds of doping cases each and and kind of proving to the world once and for all this is this is doping on a scale never seen before and now we're proving it with convicted athletes you know i don't think there's any appetite for that to happen in any sporting body really and for fifa whose showcase tournament is being staged next year in russia Vladimir Putin's Russia, pictured laughing and joking with FIFA president Gianni Infantino last weekend in St. Petersburg, you know, the the difficulties and embarrassment is is sort of magnified. You know, why would FIFA want to play a part in conclusively proving a state-supported doping program, including in football, just before they stage their showcase event Mm. in that country? I mean, it's you know, uh, they're in a difficult position to say the least. And and that's why I think, you know, you have to be serious questions about what they'll do and when they'll do it.
1: Vitaly Mutko, the Deputy Prime Minister, is the President of the Russian FA... Uh, Just to give you some more reaction, Nick, that I'm sure you've already read to your piece. He said, there have never been and will never be any problems with doping in our football. Our team are permanently being tested. They undergo doping tests after every match. They've written some sort of nonsense. Don't bother reading the English newspapers in the morning. I know some people maybe dip in and out of this story uh, to a certain extent. So while they might be familiar a little bit with with Mutko's name and what he's about, could you maybe outline where this leaves him and, and what his... Situation is there as a sort of a close ally of Vladimir Putin and the guy who essentially got the World Cup to Russia in the first place.
2: Yeah, I mean, he, he Vitaly Mutko is the former um, sports minister of Russia. So he was the sports minister when all this alleged um, scandal, plot, scheme, state-supported support, doping was conceived and was in place largely between 2011 and 2015. He was the sports minister and the McLaren reports cite him as having active knowledge and involvement in it. Um, he is also is, was, remains the president of the Russian Football Federation, the Russian FA. He was the man who led the successful Russian bid um, to stage the 2018 World Cup. Obviously, as all, all your listeners know, uh, that was voted upon about by 22 FIFA executives who are either currently in prison, wanted by the FBI, deeply implicated in massive corruption, or in a handful of cases, no more than a handful, uh, so far uh, not proven corrupt but the majority are um so that's mr Mutko. um i I read with some amusement his his comment about nonsense and don't read the english papers in 2013 when we first broke this story in in the mail on sunday that that um coaches were providing athletes with um you know drugs and then having them covered up and at the it was the Moscow laboratory and, a, and a, the lab chief um, Grigory Rodchenkov. Mr. Mutko was straight onto the onto the Russian agencies the next morning, denouncing us as Western propagandists. Said that there wasn't drug taking in Russia. Britain and particularly the pathetic newspapers who were writing about it were just jealous because Russia had recently sent it effectively its B team of athletes and thrashed the GB team, and we were just jealous and bitter. And of course, there was nothing in it. So Mr. Mutko's denials have been sort of proven to be, um, to use one of his own words, nonsense in the past. Uh, you know, it was a certainty that um, Mr. Mutko would come out yesterday and declare whatever we wrote to be nonsense. Um, certain to the extent that I even tweeted that um, that as and when he denounced our story, we should remember he was the guy who once claimed 97 breakfasts in a 20-day business trip. Um, this is not a man who's on on familiar terms with the truth in in all his in all his dealings. So, quite comfortable with Mr. Mutko saying what he said. And I guess the, quest, the the really important question in this now, is what will FIFA do and when and how credible will it be? And that's the really important issue.
1: Do you think, at a minimum, this might at least kickstart a conversation above and beyond Russia, a, a conversation around doping in football? You still, I mean, it's a topic we cover doping in general in sport quite a lot and you st- still it seems to lag behind just the narrative around football you still get all the basics all the stuff you had 10 years ago in other sports about oh well you know do- doping doesn't help you score a goal yeah. and all this kind of nonsense you think it might kick start something there or will people maybe just see this in the context of oh you know it's it's the Russians again it's just part of that and we're bored of this story now you know
2: yeah well I think I think people who are sort of interested in and serious about doping you know, are not the ones who are sort of ambivalent about the fact that it's in football. Any of us who sort of covered doping and integrity issues for sort of 10, 20 years like I have, fully aware that doping, you know, is going on in football and has been for decades. You know, there's well-established cases, particularly in Italy, of, you know, whole squads and teams being implicated in, in, in doping programs. Um, there's been a number of cases, obviously, in British football here and they're isolated, not sort of, not system- systematic. But obviously, there is doping in football. People do get caught. People do get punished. Um, and there's no, absolutely no reason what, whatsoever these days, particularly all the money at stake, that doping shouldn't be prevalent in football. And I'm sure it is. Um, I'm sure it's going on. So um, that debate is something that, you know, is ongoing in terms of, you know, people interested in this stuff in terms of, will there be sort of a much wider public acceptance of it? Will there be more discussions of it on programs like yours in newspapers? And are we taking doping seriously? Maybe, I mean, maybe there will be that debate, but the thing that would really, you know, ignite that debate would actually be, uh, you know, a ruling or a finding that there was something really concrete and proven and about the allegations that are currently being investigated. Um, you know, McLaren and his team, you know, uh, have already put forward and put into the public domain some of the other football cases among the 34. In terms, not not individuals, but given details, saying, you know, acknowledge that there's under 21 and under 17 Russian players in there, that the substances in their body, that they needs to find out why they got there. There might be an an, an explanation, but until there's a full investigation, they need to know why these are players who were, in in inverted commas, saved by Rodchenkov, i.e. positive tests were covered up by him, so protected by this system. So, you know, but the official ruling on why that happened and exactly what happened, that's something that only FIFA as a governing body and or WADA as the World Anti-Doping Agency can actually officially conclude. Um, But... I think, you know, as and when there were you know, prosecutions and verdicts proving, beyond any doubt, official verdicts, even from FIFA or WADA, I think that's the point that the debate will really perhaps just move up and become a bit more mainstream about doping and football. Yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, that's equally not to say that football is any worse affected than than any other sport. That some particular sports, track and field athletes and cycling, being the most obvious examples, have, you know, obviously had massive problems throughout, affecting huge chunks of the elite fields that do those sports. And and obviously some other sports, you know, crown green bowls or whatever, probably just by rule of thumb, is probably less susceptible to systemic doping. But um, who knows now nick who knows who these knows? Days, yeah. well i mean exactly i mean curling you know i know curling curling is um curling can be you know a physical sport when you're mopping that ice or you know with your broom so so vigorously but there are actually three curling cases under scrutiny at the moment including at least one wheelchair curling case now these are these are sort of alleged you know alleged uh, doping issues around wheelchair curling that the World Curling Federation who you know, responded and told me what they're doing about it you know, confirmed to me and was in the package that we ran in Sunday's Mail on Sunday. Yep. Um, so it is all sports um, and it is all countries but this particular probe is obviously massively focused on Russia because most of those involved are Russians.
1: Okay, Isn't Nick, brilliant story. Thanks so much for taking the time today.
2: Okay, thanks a lot. Beef I made a movie recently. Ah. Did they?
0: John Delaney could run anything.
2: They did, they did, actually. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego,
0: isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly
2: better than Zach Blatter. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real is on this way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow, too, don't forget that. No, 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 In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. We wanted to two it. He said, No one speaks to me like that. And you said and I said, What well, did I do? And that was it. it we got two expletives. And then I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She she was here to tell you, just stared at her for seven seconds, and I said, Move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, uh-huh. there were some expletive views, we came to an, an agreement. It's a very good agreement. Yeah, right. And you've used a figure there, why don't you?
1: What do you reckon, Murphy? Does this thing have much of an impact in the doping in football sphere?
3: Well, I always kind of, I always look at it like this, right, that if you, uh, if you've liked something, if you've rode in enthusiastically in support of something, and then you're told that your support is idiotic or stupid or wrong, Hmm. your reaction is not to say, yeah, I've been, I've been duped here. How terrible. It's to fight the truth that you hear. I mean, like, I I hate to link link everything back to Trump or whatever or, you know, Brexit or whatever. But the, the, the idea is that if you tell Trump supporters or, you know, hard Brexiteers that they're wrong and here are five extremely logical reasons why they're wrong, you do that in the hope that that will change their minds. But you're just basically telling them that you're idiots and you should have seen this coming and no one likes being told that. So... To the same degree, if you watch football and you, you know, you, it's easy for you to decry doping in cycling or athletics or whatever, and then you watch football. There's a level of cognitive dissonance going on here, which is, in many ways, crazy. Well, that probably continues
1: even when it's like, like, on the face of this. This is the host of the World Cup next year, having their entire squad from the last World Cup investigated. And you know, as uh, Nick was clear to say, they're part of an investigation. Mm. There's, there's. Uh, not Nothing has been proven, but they are part of this investigation into one of the biggest, that's come out of one of the biggest doping probes in history. And yet, th- there is this subtext to it where people are thinking, well, yeah, but we knew about the Russia stuff last year. And we had sus- yeah. suspicions for years before that. So is it really a doping and football story? Or this was just, locker room talk. Uh, just locker room talk, just Russian locker room talk. Uh, well, Richie said on our TV
3: show, uh, I remember <laughs> it was at the end of a drugs in sport debate and. Maybe Richie felt like he only had 10 seconds to answer the question. But in that 10 seconds, basically summed up the entire situation as it stands in doping in football. You asked him, you know, do you think that there is a doping problem in, in football or some such? And he said, to say that there isn't doping in football is to ascribe a level of morality and uh, uh, ethics to football that doesn't exist in mm-hmm. any other sport in the world. And you that. <laughs> You'd have to say that sums it up pretty nicely. Yeah. Uh why why would you possibly think and again, this is like, you know, what drug can help you trap the ball better, as you mentioned in the piece. It's like, come on, you know. Uh the uh I think it was Nick's piece on Sunday, uh, that suggested No, it was it was actually Sean England, the Guardian, I think, who was writing that people are running forty, fifty percent more than they were even fifteen years ago in football. The idea that uh uh, PEDs would not help a footballer it's just so outlandish it's really ridiculous and yet it keeps coming up and keeps coming up whenever doping in football is mentioned Alright
1: Cork City are well on their way to top dog status in Irish football this season I mentioned the 18 wins and one draw from 19 games so far and this week they start their European campaign hoping to emulate the heroics from last summer Neil Horgan was a League and Cup winner with Cork and has since written a couple of books about the club Neil thanks very much for chatting to us
0: Thanks very much guys glad to, glad to chat about Cork City anytime.
1: Uh, but, well particularly now I would say at uh, this time because this is just unbelievable not, not just for Cork for any team to be doing what they've done so far this season
0: yeah I mean the gap is amazing the, the win against Derry last week to keep it going for so long like that's 18 wins and a draw it's unbelievable really and um, they're looking into Europe next week you couldn't you couldn't be in a better position really looking into Europe a bit of pressure taken off in terms of the league for the time being at least but I'd say John Caulfield can't believe how, how well the league has gone, you know.
1: The You mentioned the Derry game. It's it, it summed up, I suppose, some of the characteristics. Well, there's a lot of the clichés in there of a team who's going to win a title. They they came from behind. Yeah. They hung on with 10 men. They won ugly when they had to. Pretty much all the clichés are in.
0: They are, yeah. And Derry <laughs> playing in Donegal it was a bit unusual for them. In fairness to Derry, you know, they've had Absolute tragedy there this year. They they bounce back from it and they deserve massive credit for that. You know Kenny Shields and his men. But Cork, it sounded like you know we're hanging on at the death. And as as I think a few people were saying that in other years it might have been the the, the kind of result that clinches you know the the, the league winning kind of uh, feeling for the club. But to be honest with you, this Cork City side, I I think the Dundalk game away the three nil was a bit of a dethroning of of Dundalk that day. And since then, they they've moved on, and they're 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 still winning games. They're still scoring goals, and it's it's just looking like they're totally uncatchable. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, the story last year was all about Dundalk. It was how they were going to have so much money from this European run that they went on that they they'd be able to dominate the league for years to come. I'm sure that didn't well, definitely wouldn't have gone down well in Cork because Cork City were were close on a number of fronts to them even before winning the cup final but it certainly seemed as though that that, that was a, a plausible scenario and it hasn't happened at all how have Cork managed to do what they've done to to take over?
0: Yeah well in my eyes if you were to analyse it it comes down to Cork City's waveform I know look there's a lot of variables there you could talk about the three lads Ronan Finn, Daryl Horgan, Andy Boyle who left on dock and, and they've had some good replacements some young lads coming in like Duffy's, is a fine player Cork City brought in players like Jimmy and um, Ryan Delaney at centre-back, Conor McCormick has, has been fantastic for the club. But what it comes down to, in my opinion, is Cork's ability to score goals on the road this year. So if you look back over the last three seasons, um, Cork City, Dundalk, Cork City have been second from 2014, 15, 16. But if you look at the goals for Colum, um for Cork City away from home, They've only scored like 21 goals. 19 last year was their total. This year, um, there's 14 games left to play. They've scored 23 goals away from home already. And that's a huge difference. And and it comes down to really, in my opinion, the top three for Cork City are razor sharp. You've got Shepard, Maguire, obviously, and Dooley on the left. And they've been in unbelievable form this year. They really have led from the front, in particular Maguire, but the, the two lads outside them as well, in fairness or a huge credit, and that's where you can see it actually in the league table, on the uh, you know on the statistics. There, the, the difference is frightening this year with their, with their goals away column.
1: Was there a sense last year? Was there a bit of envy as to how much coverage Dundalk got? Uh, well, they got the coverage because they did so well in, in in Europe in particular. Was there kind of? I remember building up to the cup final, and even after the cup final win, there seemed to be a sense that. Cork would have always backed themselves against Dundalk but you, you actually have to go and win a league you have to go and, and do these things to prove what possibly was in their minds that they're on an, an equal footing with Dundalk
0: Yeah I think you're right I think the, the league winning you know, Cork haven't won the league yet right? but if they do win the league it is you know, the acid test I do think it, it have been building for a while they're, they they benefited you know, from being on the coattails of Dundalk who in fairness have pushed the league to a higher level than it's been for some time i mean, undoubtedly Stephen Kenny and his, his players deserve huge credit for that. Obviously their Europa League, you know, run last year was outstanding. Um but Cork had to improve to stay with them. And this year I I do think uh, as well as Dundalk are coming back at the moment. Dundalk didn't improve, you know. And, and and Cork did improve. Um and that kind of combination has seen Cork kind of rocket clear. Um, you have to take into account the John Caulfield factor as well in all of this. He's a guy who's been scratching at the surface, waiting for you know Dundalk to slip up and, had to, and has pounced really. Um, Dundalk have lost six games this year, but they're still doing doing fine. If Dundalk were chasing anybody else, um, or you know, or if anyone else, if Cork's lead wasn't so big, you'd say Dundalk, you know, they have a good chance still because they're still playing well. Um, so Cork really had to go. F- Forward again. There was a. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. There was a kind of envious streak to Cork City. We were we were coming second in cup finals. I do think the cup final last year um, made a psychological difference. Beating them, McGuire, um, you know, with that goal late on, uh, and coming back into the new season thinking, look, we're the men now, and and to dock, you, you're going to have to catch us. And that's the way it's played out. To be fair.
1: McGuire himself, though, top scorer last year. He's, how many goals is he on? 18 goals this season? It's this pretty astonishing stuff. But he's on the way in July to Preston North End. Is this the kind of thing that can derail a season, might be a little bit? Uh, yeah, probably, yeah,
0: if if they weren't so far ahead, you know. Hmm. So when we won the league back in 2005, uh, Kevin Doyle left us um, earlier on in the season than this. Um, but we had we had a lot of players who could fit in Instead of him, the likes of John and Flynn, Roy, Donovan, Neil Fenn, uh, top quality players. Cork, they do have some replacements um, of, of note. Uh, Conor Ellis and, and Campion could play in that position. I do feel Maguire is a big loss. He needs to be replaced. John is looking for a, a striker in, in the transfer window. And it'll be interesting to see who he comes up with. Because Maguire has been a, like a breath of fresh air for the club. He's been fantastic. Um, and everyone has kind of played off Maguire. He, he's really led from the front he, he's, he's got a bit of vision about him when he gets the ball you, you can see the players uh, running off him, even in the air believe it or not when Mark McNulty kicks it out the Cork the likes of Shepherd, um even midfielders like uh, Morrissey they expect McGuire to beat center halves in the air and he's, he's, a, he's a small lad as you know he but he does he does beat them in the air so he'll be a big loss um all right but I, I do think they're that far away now that really I don't see the, the, the wheels coming off, you know.
1: No, I suppose I'm thinking more if things do go well this week, if they start getting a European run together, that's when you you need bodies yes. and you need you, you need a deep squad.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um especially with they've had a few injuries with with um Johnny Donlevy recently and Alan Bennett is, you know, they're they about to centre back. So they do need a deep squad. I think what he does in transfer window will be interesting. He did so well in last year's transfer window. He did like Jimmy, Jimmy Cohan, and um, Connor McCormick have been like the best players for Cork City this year. And John is at to, I suppose, really kind of um, build a new team, essentially, from old guys like Dan Murray and, and Colin Healy, who did fantastic for him. But he, he, he knew he needed a, a more energetic side, I suppose, to to, to match Sundar. And that's what he created. So it's it's another test for John, the transfer window in July. Um, but he's certainly active, I'd say from what I'm reading and it'll be interesting if I'd like to see him bring in two or three fellas particularly up top to be honest with you because when we won the league and we always go back to when we won the league but we had five or six guys who were top strikers and I think you need that sometimes you know I
1: see Cork have had one critic maybe this season Neil the Kenny Shields Derry City manager before the game last week he had a bit of a go with the style of play they play long balls they win second balls it's not a criticism it's a fact we play football on every part of the pitch because that's what the game was created for they don't is this a commonly held view? Have there been critics of cork style?
0: um I know I read what he said, um and I was interested in it. I think the timing of it was interesting. you know he's only been saying that he's only said that when they they were on their way to Donegal to play the match, maybe try and put them off. I do think over the last few years, the style could have been criticized more um John was certainly back to front when I was starting off um two thousand and fourteen I was still at the club and the instructions were pretty clear at that point that we weren't playing from the back anymore. I think he's changed, though. This year in particular, if you go down to Turner's Cross, you will. it's not just the wins. It, they're not playing from the back. I, I, I wouldn't suggest that that's the case. But you can play attractive football without having to play out from the back all the time. You know, um, And I think you're naive to do so if you don't have the team um, to play out from the back. So it's not total football. But at the same time, the three up top, when they do get it, they're razor sharp. When they when they get the ball at the back, let's say free kicks or whatever, they're happy to play out from the back. at That point, I I do take the point that maybe they don't start everything from the back and go to the full backs and and, and start from there, like the likes of maybe. On fairness to Dundalk, you know their style of play, one plaudits around Ireland and Europe, um, and they have on fairness Stephen O'Donnell being able to come deep and, and get the ball and start them playing. Cork aren't that side type of team, you know. Uh, at the same time I think they're very attractive to watch. So I wouldn't I wouldn't take the criticism totally uh, and I think they've improved a lot. This year in, in in how attractive they are, but it does help when you're scoring four or five goals every week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think no, you can be, be too critical of a team, right? What do you think about Europe? They're they're up against Levadia, Tallinn. Yeah. This, this game's been I switched. It's it's been, yeah, it's been played in another spot in Estonia, about 80 miles away from from Tallinn. Yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah,
0: and they have the away game first, which is helpful. Um, I think Tallinn. I was looking them up today in the Estonian, the old coefficient is 40 thirders our league's coefficient is 38 i think that's always a good indicator there won't be a lot between them like you get top teams in those leagues they're not bad they won't be far away from what a league of ireland team would be so john will have to be ready Um i think Turners cross at the moment if they get any kind of results they'll turn them over in in, in the home like Um if they have the three uh, shawnee mcguire shepherd and Dooley fit they're just they're just absolutely on fire at the moment and they're they are a pleasure to watch um, so I'm hopeful that they'll get over this round, and maybe maybe there's more to come. You know.
1: Okay, great stuff. Well, we hope so. Anyway, Neil, listen, great to catch up. Thanks a million.
0: Thanks very much.
2: He agrees with plenty. Just it's always who's saying it. It's never what's actually said. Ninety percent of anything is who's saying this, and ten percent is what are they actually saying. So, the ninety percent in Giles' case is, oh, it's that what
1: me.
0: John is the best football brain in the world.
1: If I could be guy
2: He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. I'd
1: never let you do. Never let you
0: down. But if you're talking about the, the the press, which you're talking about, have this uh, opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean the football people have.
3: Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong.
0: The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football.
2: just thinks I'm an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean... She... You know, what can you do? Can not please everyone?
1: Yeah, hopefully Cork are able to withstand the sale of Sean McGuire. As Neil said there, he was around in the Kevin Doyle days when Kevin Doyle went. and Nobody doubts that they're going to be able to keep up, to an extent, the form they have in the league. To to the extent required to win the league. To the extent required to win the league, I I would have thought. But it's more whether or not they can do that while have a go in Europe now this I suppose this is the great thing about how ridiculous they've been in the league up until this point if they even just continue that for mm. a few more weeks they're getting to a point where they can coast a little bit uh, and then really start juggling their resources but I, you would hope that they, they can go on a run because uh, that's what really grabs people's attention you could win nearly every game in the League of Ireland and with all due respect to the League of Ireland fans listening who are shouting saying finally you're doing a League of Ireland piece for the first time this season after Cork have won 20 games it's the the thing that's really going to grab people's attention is, on a wider context, is what Dundalk did last year in Europe. Something along those lines. A couple of big scalps and ideally getting to the group stage. No pressure. Yeah, I think the...
3: And that's the unfortunate thing, that the lack of prize money for winning the league this year means that, you know, even even that isn't as you would expect it to be. The idea should be that you win your domestic league. Uh That puts you in a far stronger financial position. uh And the you know the european adventure is the cherry on top as it is now the europa league and you know you're depending on decent draws and all the rest but that's the you know it it both gets you more attention than winning the league but it also gets you more money and like that's the that's the unfortunate thing you know so you are a little bit at the uh, at the mercy of getting a couple of decent draws yeah. but of course do that then they're immediately catapulted. I mean, if they get to the Europa League stages in the same way that Dundalk did last year, then they're catapulted onto the the wider sporting uh, theatre of uh, of our sport. And then know, they will
1: be dominating for the next 10 or 15 years. Well, I think if we've learned anything, else, <laughs> it's that there's just no coming back to, for any other team. Exactly, in, uh, yeah. Now, if to, excuse uh, me, just, to, just to, to get myself in the mood, I'm just watching Dave Barry smack it in against Birmingham back in the <sighs> 1991. And why wouldn't you? Absolutely. Nice. Jerk Hanning on commentary for some reason, on. Uh-oh. Who's this big blonde fella coming forward for Bayern? Oh, deflected goal. Stefan Effenberg.
3: He's not giving the middle finger to the turtle's cross crowd <laughs> no. I think, he?
1: didn't do that every time. Okay. Didn't do every just time like he played. A, Just in a
3: lot of games. Once we'll or twice, so seemed, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. I wouldn't say the easiest character to get along with in the dressing room, Stefan Effenberg. But I digress. <laughs> Thanks, Murph. Thank you, all. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you again tomorrow and in the meantime, take care. Bye-bye.